The following podcast contains explicit language. He, he really has a deep animosity to the press. So keep reminding yourself, this is not normal. And we've normalized it already. Less than a week after the election is over, suddenly Washington is going about its business, talking about who's going to get what jobs. And you would think that Mitt Romney had won. It's a hallucination. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who just found a new multi-million dollar tenant for Trump Tower, the Secret Service. He's Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So everybody expected Donald Trump to claim that the election was rigged if he lost. Nobody expected him to claim it was rigged if he won. That's what he did on Sunday afternoon when he sent a ridiculous tweet claiming that in addition to the Electoral College, he would have won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. Where do you even start here? The press has gotten a little better at calling Trump's lies lies, or at least saying that he has no evidence for this claim. But the term lie isn't actually very descriptive of what Trump seems to be doing. Politicians tell lies all the time. White lies, black lies, damn lies, self-serving lies, and plenty of other kinds on a daily basis. But what President-elect Trump is doing is using social media to spread what the Soviets called desinformatia, disinformation. Disinformation is a species of official propaganda. It's the lies you plant to undermine confidence in a system and help destroy it from the outside. So what is the system that Donald Trump and the people around him wish to undermine? And I'm talking about Steve Bannon, Attorney General-designate Jeff Sessions, and Chris Kobach, who's up for the top job at Homeland Security. In particular, it's the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the whole apparatus of civil rights law that protects the right to vote for African Americans and other historically disenfranchised minorities. The political imperative here is pretty obvious. Minorities vote disproportionately for Democrats. So anything that makes it harder for people to register, harder to vote, harder to be fairly represented, from voter ID laws to the disenfranchisement of people who've served time in prison to gerrymandering, serves the interests of the Republican Party. The person I wanted to talk to about this is Bruce Ackerman. He's a professor of constitutional law at Yale and actually taught Chris Kobach, among many others. But he's also a specialist in the civil rights movement, which he calls the Second Reconstruction. He fears it may now be following the path of the First Reconstruction in the 19th century toward reversal and dismantlement. I'll be back with that conversation with him right after we do the tweets. Prior to the election, it was well known that I have interest in properties all over the world. Only the crooked media makes this a big deal. The Democrats, when they incorrectly thought they were going to win, asked that the election night tabulation be accepted. Not so anymore. In addition to winning the Electoral College in a landslide, I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. It would have been much easier for me 
to win the so-called popular vote than the Electoral College in that I would only campaign in three or four states instead of the 15 that I visited. I would have won even more easily and convincingly, but smaller states are forgotten. Serious voter fraud in Virginia, New Hampshire, and California. So why isn't the media reporting on this? Serious bias. Big problem. My guest today is Bruce Ackerman. He's the Sterling Professor of Law at Yale University, and he's the author of many books, including most relevantly and recently The Civil Rights Revolution, Volume 3, which was published in 2014 on the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. Professor Ackerman, thanks for joining me on the show today. Sure. Hi. How are you? I'm well. So I wanted to know what you made of Donald Trump tweeting yesterday that he would have won the popular vote if he said not for millions of people who voted illegally. What was your reaction to seeing that? Ah, So sad. So sad. But we shouldn't be overwhelmed by tweets. We have to put this in uh, the big picture, or at least <laughs> that's what they pay me to do. <laughs> and uh, That's why they pay you the big bucks at Yale University. That's huh? right. Yeah. That's right. You know, I mean, uh, I'm not going to reveal my uh, tax returns. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, C. Van Woodward wrote this great book. And it, one of its great virtues, which I do not often share, is that it's like a beautiful short book. I don't I've probably 140 pages long, called The Strange Career of Jim Crow. Yes. And uh, it's that book and his argument there, which is correct as such things go from a matter of history, uh, I very much believe, um, that's haunting me right now. Basically, uh, the story tells us this. Um, The only bureaucracy, only federal bureaucracy that was actually operational after the Civil War was the Army. The Justice Department was just created. It had two members. (laughs) Um, And that's why in the the, uh, Compromise of 1877, in which there was a lot of cheating uh, and uh, suppression of black votes, uh, and part of the deal, uh, which got uh, uh, Hayes, um, who was the Republican, uh, that is, the uh, believer in black rights, and civil rights um, into the presidency was that he had to withdraw the troops in the South. The conventional view says, and then blacks were suppressed. This says Woodward is false. Once the federal bureaucracy, uh, also known as the army at the time, uh, was removed, blacks kept on voting in the South for 15 years in large numbers. And indeed, that's why they were so threatening to the uh, resurgent whites. So if after the Civil War, there was a long battle between Reconstruction and Jim Crow, which was anti-Reconstruction, we're having... And the the Reconstruction was winning. It isn't as if, (laughs) you know, there was a profound transformation. You know, there are black men who are in the legislatures and go to Congress and all of this. And then it comes to an end with this dramatic action, but that isn't the end of it. 
And what we're seeing now, I fear, you know, it really rips my heart out, uh, is this kind of beginning of the end here. We had a crucial first step with uh, the five to four opinion uh, by uh, Justice Roberts in 2013 called Shelby County, which struck down, amazingly enough, as unconstitutional, um, the um, crucial sections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And um, this uh, had the same consequence as 1877. It no longer authorized, uh, in this case, the Justice Department, the federal bureaucracy, to engage in preemptive controls over exclusionary tactics, not only in the South, but nationwide. This was the first blow, uh, and a terrible one. Um, But now uh, what we're going to see, alas, is, um, and it's clear, I mean, you know, of course, there's a lot of wishful thinking, uh, uh, but um, there will now be uh, first uh, the Justice Department of Jeff Sessions uh, will uh, not uh, try to enforce the other sections of the act. Well, let me ask you about that a bit. So as, as, you, as you say, this sort of 2013 Shelby County decision limited the applicability of the, the Voting Rights Act. But I guess there are a couple questions coming out of that. There's still a lot of the Voting Rights Act left after Shelby County. And one question is whether a Jeff Sessions Justice Department can just say, we're not going to enforce the rest of it. Well, you have to make a lot of allocation decisions, you know, how many resources will they put into this as opposed to, for example, um, engaging in scrutiny of fraudulent voting practices. Which Jeff Sessions, when he was the U.S. attorney in Alabama, actually brought cases Completely against right. civil rights workers for tr- registering people to vote, essentially vote and fraud. And one has to consider, you see, we don't know where my former student, I should say, and a highly intelligent person, Chris Kobach, is going to land up. You know, in my uh, uh, current event speculation, it depends. The uh, president hasn't decided whether uh, uh, Giuliani is going to be uh, the secretary of state yet. Uh, but if he isn't, uh, they're holding uh, the uh, a department that does Homeland Security. Department of Homeland uh, Security, yeah. The, uh, if Giuliani takes Homeland Security, uh, Kobach will predictably be uh, right in the Justice Department. And he is uh, deeply committed to the notion that the real problem in uh, elections is uh, a vote fraud. Yes. Now, you, you have a lot of illustrious students who've gone on to great careers, uh, Professor Ackerman, but, but Chris Kobach, I mean, did you see this potential in him as a student? I mean, were his views that radical? Chris Kobach was a brilliant student of mine. He did excellent work uh, on the Swiss Confederation. <laughs> you know, I, I should say, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I'm an old-fashioned person. I... Uh, you know, really encourage students, whatever their views are. He had ideas. I don't really know what his views on these issues were at that time, to be honest. I don't, but he is a highly intelligent person, and we do know now what his ideas are. And we can also uh, expect um, a proposal to uh, change uh the uh, statutes of the United States so as to require for federal elections uh, voter ID, stringent voter ID requirements, uh, which is legal. 
This has come up before, right? I mean, didn't, in the Reagan administration, didn't the Civil Rights Division push that? And what happened? What happened in the 80s when, when, when conservatives tried to push the idea of some national voter it, well, ID? No, there was a big reaction. But this time, we don't have the Democrats in control of Congress. We don't have a substantial, you know, resistance here. Um, I mean, with the president of the United States um, deeply committed to the idea that this is a uh, a problem, will uh, Mr. Ryan resist? I, I see no reason to think so. I hope so. Well, it certainly serves Ryan's interests, right, in terms of enshrining a more permanent Republican majority, both in Congress and in state legislatures, if you disenfranchise people. So this is, you know, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about, you see. We are beginning here. uh, We'll have a a fifth vote, which will um, uh, support uh, Shelby County uh, and indeed could extend it. Because both both Kennedy and and Roberts are supported the 2013 decision. Absolutely, and John yeah. Roberts, when he was a, uh, the, the fact is that John Roberts and I were Henry Friendly law clerks, and I, I know him pretty well. Uh, he's a person of fund. He's a highly principled person. One of the his deep beliefs, and this was developed, he developed this. There are memos and things of this kind when he was a special assistant to uh, William French Smith uh, in the Reagan administration. Reagan Attorney General, right, for for our younger listeners. That's right. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, And uh, and also, uh, he takes the the view public i mean the i'm not i would never divulge anything that i knew you know, confidential or anything like that uh, he t- he took the view then that um the provisions of the uh, voting rights act which um survived uh, uh shelby county and which you were referring to before um should um be interpreted very narrowly and so that you needed to, to show an intention. The, the legislature had an intention to discriminate, as opposed to it just having the effect of, of the fewer con- yes, minorities consequence, voting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, that's very hard to show. It's extremely hard to show because um, uh, legislature isn't a person. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so um, I do not believe that we have seen the end of the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and as you are suggesting, uh, we can very well see, I could very well see the uh, uh, Justice Department putting its priorities elsewhere uh, to the dramatic disadvantage of minorities, American citizens born abroad who cannot su- supply a birth certificate and the like. Um, so this is extremely serious. So that's one dimension of the end of the second reconstruction, which has this uncanny uh, relationship to uh, the end of the first uh, reconstruction. Uh, Can I just spell that out a bit? When you talk about the second, the, the era of the second reconstruction, you're talking about the civil rights movement, and you're talking about as a, as a yeah. parallel to the first reconstruction, and this reaction being a parallel to the Jim Crow response to the that you were talking about at the beginning. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sorry that I'm being too elliptical, but um, absolutely right. Well, it's obvious to you, but I'm not sure, it, you know, it is so obvious to everyone that there's something so momentous going on. I mean, people see a tweet like this from Donald Trump, and the initial reaction is he's just being a nutty guy in the middle of the night. It's either his ego yes. or his paranoia. 
as opposed to the idea that there's something strategic going on here, that he's trying to undermine confidence in voting, suggests that vote fraud is a real problem to lay the groundwork for the attack on the Voting Rights Act that you're talking about. Well, you see, I don't know whether it is strategic. I, I, I don't that, either. Right. That's I think the question. on the one hand, he is Trump uh, engaging in uh, uh, his own uh, rhetorical stances, which continue the rigged election motif of the uh, uh, of the pre-election period. Even though he but won. Even he though he won. It's still a rigged election. But yes. That's right. But then he is appointing people who are serious. Chris Kobach is intellectually serious. Sessions is intellectually serious. So I don't, I'm not saying that, that Trump is being strategic. He is rather being Trump, but he is putting in place serious-minded people who genuinely believe that um, the real problem of the miscarriage of our democratic system is a voter fraud on election day. Well, there are two different questions wrapped up there, right, Professor Ackerman, because on the one hand, I can understand an intellectually serious argument that we shouldn't bind states, continue to bind them under the Voting Rights Act if we can't prove malign intention to disenfranchise people. I don't agree with that, but I can can credit that, a, a, a possible serious argument there. On the question, the empirical question of voter fraud, it's a lot harder to credit that as intellectually serious. I mean, do Chris Kobach and Jeff Sessions and Justice Roberts, for that matter, actually believe that millions or a smaller number of votes are being stolen and that election fraud is a genuine empirical problem? You see, um, in an important sense, um, I am not interested in psychoanalysis. (laughs) I'm interested in the clear and present danger of a profound profound setback for actual real-world democracy in this country. I am well known uh, as a relatively optimistic person, generally speaking, Uh, but this is is the most serious uh, set of events uh, in the last 50 years. Yeah. So as you say, you're you're an optimistic person. I mean, what do you how do you feel about the fate of the second American Reconstruction now? Do you think this is the beginning of the end of it or do you think this is a reversal which will itself be reversed and the civil rights movement ultimately vindicated? Well, you know, I mean, uh, I never thought I would be asking that question. But um, that said, and and I try uh, to take a uh, comparative constitutional view of the situation and, uh, uh, and try to ask what's the relationship between what's happening here and what's happening in England and, and, and in Europe. Um, I think it's fair to say that comparatively speaking, the uh, progressive center-left is in a much stronger position in the United States as opposed to Europe. In Europe, um, 
in France, uh, the center-left is completely is not even going to have a, uh, one of the two leading candidates in the presidential election. In England, uh, the Labour Party is you know, completely unelectable and all that. Uh, I do think it's fair to think that uh, in 2018 and 20, uh, uh, there is the prospect of a substantial a political recovery of the center left in the United States. And in that sense, I'm optimistic. Um, however, and this goes back to uh, uh, another very important uh, implication of uh, our present situation, um, the question of gerrymandering, which is another element in uh, the uh, present situation. Not only uh, are there going to be increasing limitations of poor and people and and uh, and uh, immigrant citizens from being able to establish their uh, citizenship but um, uh, the uh, gerrymandering is a big problem uh, if we had had Clinton winning um, it was perfectly plausible to imagine these uh, Clinton Supreme Court uh, taking serious actions against gerrymandering. This is gone. So here's here's the last question on a slightly different topic, since I have a constitutional lawyer on the phone. Does President-elect Trump have a problem with the foreign emoluments clause of the Constitution, which would seem to suggest, as my friend Noah Feldman argues, that he can't take uh, money for, from foreign leaders who, who stay in his hotels and do other things for his business inter- internationally? Well, you know, I'm not a great fan of um, taking a few words out of a text of 1787 and uh, uh, trying to, uh, which were designed uh, for a different country, and then trying to pour a lot of stuff into it. Um, Does President Trump have a fundamental problem of legitimacy in failing to reveal his tax returns, failing to sharply distinguish between his business and and presidential interests? Yes. Are we... uh, greatly advanced in understanding this by uh, lifting a few words out of uh, the text uh, of uh, 1787, which was calculated to prevent um, foreign powers. After all, there was uh, Spain and uh, there was uh, uh, France uh, and there was England all uh, lurking around and wanting to bribe uh, the president. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's what was the original motivation here. You know, I, I um, uh, are we really, is our understanding really advanced uh, by uh, invoking this clause? Well, I, I'm not really overwhelmed by the answer, yes. You're much too principled. I've been speaking to Bruce Ackerman. He is the Sterling Professor of Law at Yale University. Uh, professor Ackerman, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure talking to you. Bye-bye. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. If he were here, he would tell you to give us a rating and review on iTunes. 
which will help other people discover the show. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.